Now hear God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks to God. Father, we ask you this morning to open our hearts to your word. By your Holy Spirit, grant us understanding, and by your grace, enable us to respond with wisdom and obedience, that we might live lives that please and honor you all the days that you have allotted to us under the sun. Amen. Amen. This morning, we are continuing in our intermittent series in Ecclesiastes. This is the third sermon in the series. Last March, I gave an introductory sermon. I covered chapters uh, 1 and 2, and then uh, a few weeks ago, I covered chapter 3. This morning, we're going to be going through three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, concluding with the verse uh, that I just read. Three chapters is a lot to cover, and yet I also need to summarize some of the important interpretive guidelines that we need to take with us to understand the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. So let's jump right into a speed summary so that we can move through our text carrying those uh, guidelines that we need to understand it properly. Of course, we need to understand the main question, the main theme of this book is Solomon's question, what profit, what gain, what benefit do we have from all of the labor in which we toil under the sun. Solomon searched everywhere for an answer to this vexing question, and yet he hit roadblock after roadblock. When he compared our brief lifespan to the seemingly eternal cycles of nature, he realized that no matter what answer he might find, it would be short-lived. He saw that soon, no matter what our accomplishments they will be forgotten. And so, why do we spend all of our blood and sweat and tears in all of these labors and toils that we engage in under the sun? Now, it can be easy for us as Christians to respond to that question and and give it an eternal perspective answer and be able to say, well, we, we know that Jesus promised that our toil is in fact not in vain in the Lord and that he will indeed reward all of our toil. And that is, of course, true. But if we jump the gun that way, then we're going to miss what Solomon has to say. We have to stick with him in his context in order to to understand and enjoy the profound wisdom of this book. This wisdom offers us the opportunity to overcome anxiety, to gain stability, and enjoy a spirit of contentment despite whatever struggles that we might face under the sun. And so in the first sermon that I preached, I pointed out a few interpretive guidelines that we really need to understand if we're going to unpack this wisdom and benefit from it. That first guideline was that his context is deliberately set with that under-the-sun framework. He's keeping his inquiry within the bounds of what we can know in the here and now. What do we gain now from our toil? What is the gain and profit from what we do in our days? And if we can understand his answer, then we're going to gain something in addition to the eternal rewards that Jesus promises us benefits for today and tomorrow and next decade for our entire lives. The second important interpretive guideline was that Solomon actually has two answers to this question. He unpacks it in one way that can sound quite hopeless and then in another way that's actually very hopeful. His first answer is very blunt and direct. There is no gain. 
there is no profit from our toil under the sun, that it's all vain and meaningless. And most of the volume of content in the book unpacks that answer. And so if you're not careful, if you're not looking closely, you might miss his second answer. And it's his second answer that is a more ultimate answer. It's succinct, but it's powerful. While there is no outward gain directly from our toil under the sun, there is a gain, there is a gain that comes as a gift from God to those who please him. This ultimate answer that he gives, it's, it's repeated throughout the book. We saw it at the end of chapter 2. We saw it again in chapter 3 in verses 12 to 13. He said, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their, in their lives and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It is the gift of God. And we're going to see the same exact answer repeated today when we get to the end of chapter 5. The gift of enjoyment of toil and of the benefits that come from our toil, that is the gift of God. That is the gain that we get from our toil under the sun. The third interpretive guideline that we have to remember is the key word in this book, which is vanity, or maybe your translations say futility or meaningless. But the word there, the actual Hebrew term is hebel. And that term is an ambiguous term. It can, in fact, carry negative connotations that we sort of read into and it. And in that first answer he gives, it has that negative sense. But strictly, the term itself just means vaporous or misty or elusive. And so the term itself, Hebel, it can switch both ways. It could have this negative context or it could have a, a neutral context. And Solomon uses this key term in a, in a very specific and tactical way. He uses a, an ambiguous word in order to look at his question from multiple angles and come up with different answers. It's actually a, a, a really skillful and masterful use of language. And if you pay close attention to Ecclesiastes, you see that he uses ambiguity this way by design. It allows him to evaluate and come at it from different angles and give a deeper answer after he, evaluates it, wait, wait, after he evaluates it in a different way. Finally, in summarizing um, the, these interpretive guidelines, we, we saw last time in chapter 3 that there's a structure to the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon uh, takes his question in one direction and evaluates it in one context. Chapter 3 was all about our relationship to time and the variable seasons that we experience all, in our, all of our days under the sun. But when he does it, he will drop in a foreshadowing of a new topic that he'll pick up on later. And then when he gets there, he'll bring his former topic again, and it creates this layered, complex, textured text. It's really quite beautiful um, in terms of language, but it also makes sermon structure extremely difficult. But I'll do my best to bring us along here this morning. So one of the threads that we saw last week, or last time, when we were looking at chapter 3, was the topic of evil oppression under the sun and its tragic joy-killing impacts on our toil. Now, he only touched on that topic for a couple of verses in chapter 3, but now he's going to carry that forward in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And, of course, he'll introduce new threads that we'll, he'll pick up on later. So I'm going to have to be sparing. I won't be able to cover everything in these chapters. I just want to trace out this primary theme of oppression under the sun, which predominates these chapters. And it's presented right away in chapter 4, verse 1. 
And then I returned and continued, considered all of the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praised the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. As Solomon considers this topic of oppression under the sun, he mourns over it, and he uses really strong language. The oppressed, he says, are full of tears, and they have no comforter. Their sorrow is so great that he says they're better off dead. More than that, better that they never were born to live under oppression. In chapter 5, he calls this a severe evil, very strong language. And we might ask ourselves, of all of the experiences that we can face under the sun, why is oppression singled out as such a horror? Well, to understand why oppression is such a severe evil, let's define the term a bit. I want to offer a definition that I believe summarizes what we're going to see as we work through this text. But I would summarize oppression as I read it and understand it from these, from these chapters. As any activity of those in places of power to deprive others of their natural God-given rights to life, liberty, and the holding and use of their property. Now, that might sound a little bit like the Declaration of Independence, right? Except for substituting the pursuit of happiness with, uh, with the use and holding of property, which is what that means. The, the political language of the time, that phrase, happiness, that's what they understood. It wasn't, didn't mean you could just go out and do whatever you want for fun. It meant you had the right to use your, your personal property the way you saw fit. I use this definition because I believe that the founding ideals of our nation were, in fact, a synthesis of biblical wisdom and Christian doctrine as applied to power, as applied to government. And I believe that much of that biblical wisdom that informed our political philosophy is found right here in these chapters. And so as I make application to our text to us today, I'm going to have to make governmental connections, and there are many connections. So if oppression uh, deprives people of their lives, or of their ability to engage in and benefit from their labor, which is a fundamental part of their property, then oppression attacks and undermines the very consolation, the only comfort, the only reward that can be found under the sun for gain in our toil. Besides this gift of enjoyment of toil, there are no other benefit. There is no gain. There is no benefit. There's only futility, meaninglessness, and darkness. Because oppression destroys the the blessing of God, replacing it only with dark despair, it is indeed an absolute enemy of God. It is a grievous evil. It is a ruiner of lives, a joy-killing, futility-enabling, stupidly wasteful and destructive evil. And so if we want to enjoy God's design for our works, If we want to reflect God's grace-enabled contentment in our toil, if we want to show forth the richness of all of his blessings, then we must vigilantly stand guard against all tyrants and oppressors who set themselves up against God. We must identify oppressors and resist tyrants with all our might. 
And so as we survey these three chapters, we're going to gain some important insights into where the evil of oppression comes from so that we can resist it with all of our hearts. And as we learn how to identify the sources of oppression, we will learn to identify the roots of such evil in our own hearts. Because without God's blessing, without the liberating power of the gospel of God's grace, we will be both oppressors and the oppressed. So let's dive in and learn how to destroy the roots of oppression in our lives and live in the liberty of God's grace. Verse 4, he says, Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. As you begin to see in this section, uh, and we're going to see repeated throughout all these chapters, the primary root of all oppression, the taproot of oppression, is unrestrained appetites, otherwise known as lust. A lust is an appetite that is ungoverned and seeks satisfaction outside the bounds that God has provided for what is otherwise a good and healthy desire. Lusts come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, but common to all lusts is that they are unable to be satisfied. And yet they grow all the more as you feed them. They're ever-wandering desires, never finding what they're looking for. And so in, in these verses, we see a certain species of lust, a certain kind of lust, which is a desire to outdo our neighbor when we see their skill out of envy. This is a competitive lust fueled by ambition that knows no bounds. But I do need to point out here that there is another one of those cases where Solomon is using ambiguous language by design because the word envy here, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. That word, likewise, can be taken with a negative sense, like here, envy, um, um, out-of-control out of ambition, or it can be taken more positively, like zeal or passion. And it's true that competition can be fueled by a desire to improve on a product or a service, which is a wonderful thing. It, it creates all sorts of benefits to us in society. And yet, it can also be a grievous evil. What, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is Business Wars, where, uh, where, where David Brown uh, reenacts these epic corporate rivalries. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll find all sorts of examples of destructive, out-of-control rivalries, all sorts of lying. And one of the more recent episodes that I enjoyed was called The Godfathers of Wine. And it traced out the story of Ernest and Julio Gallo. And the Gallo brothers were very successful. One of their most successful products was the Bartles and James brand of wine cooler. Um, I don't know if you're if you're old enough, you might remember those iconic commercials where uh, Frank Bartles and Ed James sit out on their front porch in their rocking chairs, and, and they pair up and decide which foods go well with their wine coolers, and apparently they go pairs well with just about every kind of food. 
except for kohlrabi and candy corns, apparently. doesn't go well with those. And, and each, each spot signs off with this trailer. Enjoy Bartles and James with your lunch or dinner, and thank you for your support. Behind this, this country vibe, laid-back uh, branding, you have the story of Ernest Gallo. And the series title, Godfathers of Wine, was well titled because Ernest, despite his meaning of his name, was not Ernest at all. He lied and cheated and defrauded and threatened anything to claw his way to the top. All of the seasons of Business Wars, if you listen to them, are filled with all sorts of, of examples of amb- out-of-control ambition, lying, stealing, threatening, and all manner of, of oppression in the marketplace. And yet, <laughs> this envy, this desire, this passion, this zeal to improve upon the the skill of your neighbor results in tons of good in our society. It brings about improved products and services. It brings legitimate blessings into the world. So how do we capture and control our desire to improve and compete and do well with an out-of-control ambition that knows no bounds and brings about oppression? Well, Solomon gives us the answer. He says we need to work heartily, and yet by staying in, we stay in bounds by embracing quietness, taking our rest in addition to working hard. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Of course, we can fall off the other side of the horse as he notes the, the opposite, where the fool uh, folds his hands and consumes his own flesh, and By the way, if you are a fool and you won't work, you will be poor and you will become dependent and you will be a prime candidate for oppressors to come right alongside and and utilize your situation. And that happens all the time in the world. But But the other side is to have both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. One of the ways that God helps us to not fall off either side is by appointing six days for our our work and one day to rest. That's our Sabbath rest is one important limiting factor, one governor to keep our ambitions and our toil and our works in line. But that's not the only balancing limit God sets. Verse 7, he says, Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and grave misfortune. In order for us to preserve this balance between work and rest, we have to stay within God's limits. One limit is Sabbath rest, but another is his calling us into community, into families, into the covenant community of the church. In the beginning, God created man, and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. We work in order to serve our families by providing for their needs. We work and and produce profit to help support the ministry of the church. Our toil is integrated with, with others and create economies that bring forth growth and jobs and meaningful activity for all creation. Our works are woven into the dominion mandate, both accomplishing and enabling us to multiply and to transform the earth. 
How sad then, isn't it, that so many entrepreneurs, they forsake marriage, they forsake family, they forsake the church, because it would limit their time resources to grow their company. But that's what happens when lusts grow. They enslave people, producing an ever-growing thirst, but never satisfying it. This is not how God has called us to live. That is not how he has called us to work. No, he has established us to live in community and teaches us that, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? The one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Living faithfully in community, in the covenant community, it brings balance, it brings reward, it brings help, it brings warmth, and it brings protection from oppressors. Because oppressors always seek to leverage their power, and one of the ways that they do that is by isolating people quarantining them, uh, social distancing them, locking them down. It's very easy to overpower people when you isolate them. But when we stand in numbers, then we can effectively resist oppressors much more easily than when we stand alone. But the power of community, it's not just an effective defense against outside enemies. Living faithfully within community provides a check against our impulses. It keeps us from overwork and oppressive marketplaces. Because when we live by ourselves, for ourselves, we're kings of our own domain. We serve ourselves only. We do what we want without limits. But when we have to look out for our neighbor, when we have to provide for a wife and for children, when we need to use the gifts God's given to us in the service of his church, then we are forced to reallocate our time. And that will put downward pressure on our productivity. Communities and living in community, it provides built-in limits and restraints on our use of time, which keeps us in, in bounds and preserves our blessings, keeping our good desires from becoming out-of-control, wandering desires. What's more, living in community produces a culture of accountability. It keeps us accountable for showing up for worship and Sabbath observance, for engaging in festal seasons and in participating in the liturgy. All of these things counteract the gravity of selfish absorption and irrational lust for more and more money, more and more accomplishment. Community keeps us from becoming self-absorbed tyrants and evil oppressors. Now, even as Solomon lays out one answer for how to resist evil, the evil of lust-driven oppression by being faithful to family and community, he turns around, of course, and looks at it from another perspective and brings some balance. Because while community really is essential, there is such a thing as too much loyalty to community, which can likewise lead to oppression. This happens when healthy families and healthy communities tip toward becoming factious and sectarian parties. And so he gives this parable in verse 13. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. 
There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. In this little parable, Solomon illustrates something that we see all of the time in our shift, the shifting winds of politics. In our case, we deal with the alternating popularity of political parties rather than individual kings, but the pattern is exactly the same. Whatever party gets power, whatever power or constituency uh, gets placed in power, it's always because they've gained popularity. And it does not take long for that popularity to wear off. Soon, they'll start compromising in ways that the people disdain, and a new platform and a new faction will rise up to replace the old. Young, fresh new faces rise up against comfortable incumbents, and soon after, a new king uh, and a new face appears and, and, their, and popularity shifts again. But what we need to realize, what drives this whole thing, we see in verse 16. It's the abundance of the people who, ha- who favor these ebbs and flows. See, rulers only gain power through their popularity. Even in the days of the kings of Israel, kings governed through the consent of the people. Kings, rulers, political parties, and factions, they always have to gin up support for their platform in order to get into power. No one understood the oppressive danger and power struggles of populism and party spirit in the the political sphere than our founding fathers. I want to read a couple paragraphs uh, from George Washington's farewell address as he was leaving office. He said, I have already intimated to you the danger of parties in the state. Let me now take a more comprehensive view and warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. This spirit, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature, having its root in the strongest passions of the human mind. It exists under different shapes in all governments, more or less sifted, controlled, or repressed. But in those of the popular form, it is seen in its greatest rankness and is truly their worst enemy. The alternate dominion of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. But this leads at length to a more formal and permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual. And sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. You see, communities and families, churches, nations, they're all wonderful blessings. And they can function as governors over our work to keep us in check, to keep us in bounds. But loyalty to party or to family, even to church which finds itself in competition to loyalty to Christ, can quickly become the ground of unaccountable power leading to despotism and oppression. God uses families. He uses churches. He uses governments to restrain evil and thwart oppression. And yet, all earthly powers must be kept accountable to God himself. When families and churches, communities and governments, when they submit to his will, and operate under his laws, they become profound blessings and highly functional means of preserving our liberties, our joys, and our blessings. But when they assert themselves over God's rules, 
they become a grievous evil, as George Washington foresaw the ruin of public liberty. As we turn to chapter 5, Solomon is going to introduce a new topic, one of those new threads he introduces. Um, but he's still following his thread on oppression, but he's going to introduce the topic of words and the use of our words, particularly as we make hasty vows. Um, and he's going to come back to that topic later in the book. He'll talk about words some more. But as we look at this next, next passage, I just want to follow this thread of how words, hasty words, can be used to, as the seeds of oppression. Chapter 5, verse 1. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. We've all, we've all seen how unbounded ambition is a major root of oppression. And one of the ways that power brokers get power is by making big promises as a way of currying favor. Politicians are masters of big dreams and grand promises made through hasty words. And we all know how these, uh, these hasty promises lead to oppressive politics uh, and policies. But, of course, in this text, he's talking about vows made to God. And there's something truly dangerous when we start treating God as someone that we can bargain with or turn into a political ally by offering him our utopian dreams. When we treat God this way, we do one of two things. We either bring him down to our level, treating him like someone that we can bargain with, or we elevate ourselves to his level, imagining that we have some godlike status that he will regard. Anyone who imagines that he can do business with God who assigns himself godlike status to bargain with Yahweh, anyone like that is well on their way to becoming a world-class authoritarian and tyrannical oppressor. We need to fear God. We have to keep our unbridled ambition and lofty dreams in check. We have to kill the tyrant within and silence our impulses for hasty speech. But there's another danger that we face uh, and we, uh, in, our, in, in the potential path to becoming oppressors. And that's how we respond to and react to other oppressors out there in the world. Verse 8, If you see oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. As we endeavor to keep our own lusts in check by being content in the toil that God has assigned to us, as we're dealing um, with our own inner impulses and, and keeping them all in check, we also have to contend with the fact that there are evil oppressors out there in the world. And this calls for wisdom and prudence and discretion. And Solomon's first line of defense in dealing with external oppressors 
is to check our outrage. Check our outrage. Yes, oppression is evil. Yes, it undermines much good in the world. And yet, we're always going to have oppressors with us. There, there is no other alternative, especially in the halls of government power. Oppressors are attracted to government power like a moth is to a flame. And yet, Solomon tells us that even given that reality, governments are necessary and they are a blessing. While a, while a government can get out of control and become a threat to blessings, without government, it would be utterly impossible to enjoy our liberties and our blessings. And that's because one of the most basic functions of a government is to, uh, to, to keep track of and adjudicate property rights. To keep track of who's got title of what and where the boundary line, lines are and who owns it. And to deal with those cases where people transgress and defraud. If we didn't have at least that functioning in a society, then none of us could, could hope to keep that which we produce. And so we need government. We need some degree of bureaucracy in order to keep track of these basic things and enjoy it. So government, it really does help us. It preserves our blessings. And yet as no sooner have we set up a department to oversee land use than uh, vain and greedy officials start lording their power over citizens and injustices occur. But if when we see it happen, we overreact if we turn violent, then all we're doing is swallowing the seeds of oppression ourselves and feeding the tyrant within. This passage in particular about one, you know, not one uh, governing official looking over another is one of those examples of how biblical wisdom informed the founding fathers as they structured our form of government. They understood how important it was because of this tendency, because of this reality, to separate powers. They designed a system in which one official formally oversees another. We have different branches of government. They each keep each other in check with checks and balances. Now, it's not working all that great right now, but on paper, it's actually a really good synthesis of biblical wisdom. So as, we're, uh, as we hate oppression, and we ought to and we do, we have to keep our outrage in check. We can't become revolutionaries every single time we see injustice. We have to resist properly. First, by controlling our own lusts. And one of the ways that we can keep our own reactions against injustices we see in check is to remember that while we don't have to be revolutionaries to upend the system, God will, in fact, judge all evil oppressors. He will do it. And he will do it even in our lives under the sun. In fact, there's one way that God judges these overly ambitious oppressors in this life. And we read it in, in verse 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Have you ever thought about what a hell it would be to have an ever-increasing thirst, but nothing to quench it? Imagine being so thirsty 
and, and having gallons of water all around you. But the more you drank, the more your thirst grew. Or imagine sitting in front of a, 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 an incredible banquet of foods, but completely lacking any sense of taste to enjoy it. Oh, yeah, actually, probably a lot of you can relate to that one pretty well these days. But think about this. We, we all have just one stomach, and it's finite. Joey Chestnut happens to have a stomach that can consume 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes, but it's still finite. What good does it do to have 100 times more food than you can possibly eat? Once your stomach is full, it's full. Our capacity to enjoy food at any given time is limited by the capacity of our stomach. No matter how rich you are or how much food you have available, you have one stomach. And so Solomon points out that while the rich man might have way more food than the laborer, it's the poor man who, having worked all day, has the greater appetite, the greater capacity to enjoy his dinner with a nice Bartles and James wine cooler. He comes home famished, tired, and he can eat whatever he likes and then sleep the sleep of angels. But the rich man who lays around all day in the lap of luxury, still full from his lunch, he can't eat nearly as much. If he gorges himself, he pays for it with restlessness and painful digestion that keeps him tossing and turning all night. This little parable is an illustration of how the more that somebody has going after it with all of their, their lusts, out-of-control lusts, the more they end up decreasing their ability to enjoy it. They decrease their capacity for the joy. This is a grievous evil, but it's an apt judgment on oppressors who vainly strive for more and more wealth, more and more power, all the while dulling and killing their capacity to enjoy the results. But the harder you work inside the boundaries of God's blessing, the more you enjoy the fruits of your labor. But if you strive beyond his limits, you'll find that the richer you get, the less capacity you have to enjoy what you gain. That's God's judgment on the wicked here under the sun. And, of course, in the end, they lose everything. Verse 13, there's a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owners to his hurt. And those riches persist through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Oppressors are dead even while they live, eating in darkness and sorrow. And when they die, they perish forever. So don't envy the wicked. Don't feed your inner oppressor by overreacting to oppressors in the world. Overcome your inner oppressor by remembering the ultimate answer to Solomon's question, which we see again here, the end of chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God 
for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Obedience to God's limits, receiving his grace and his gift, this delivers blessings and the power to enjoy them. If you want power, don't seek it in external power and oppression. Seek the power that comes from the grace of God, the power to enjoy your toil and to enjoy the simple blessings that come. Now, chapter 6, I'm going to conclude with chapter 6, and I'm I'm just going to actually read through it. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 9, because really I think this is just a summary of everything he's been talking about in chapters 4 and 5. And you're going to hear these exact same things echoed as I just read through uh, chapter 6 through verse 9. There is an evil which I've seen under the sun, and it's common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires... Yet God does not give him the power to eat it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, This has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? And then lastly, verse 9, where we began. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The Lord is a gracious and generous God. He has filled life under the sun with all manner of blessing. If we stay inside the boundaries of his blessing, if we content ourselves with what we actually have, the sight of the eyes, the real things that God has given us right before our eyes, if we content ourselves in that and not strive vainly with wandering desires and dreams and fantasies that have no real existence in the world and therefore can never be actually enjoyed, if we accept God's gracious provision and real blessings, then he will add to them the power to enjoy them to the full. How sad and vain and futile is the oppression of wandering desires, lusts that always seek satisfaction but never find it. How empty and hopeless is the man whose eyes are so big, yet he can never see the object of his desires. How intolerable is a hunger for rich delicacies when a man's taste buds are dead. But when, by God's grace, we accept his gift and we stop toiling in order to worship him, when we surrender our demands for self-rule and submit to Jesus, then we find our plates perfectly full of wonderful foods and our senses enlivened with the capacity to taste. We taste and see that the Lord is good, and we are satisfied more than when their grain and new wine abound. We are given food and the capacity to enjoy it. We no longer spend our toil and labor on what does not satisfy. 
No, we come to the Lord and buy wine and milk without money and without price. We come to the Lord, we get water that quenches eternal thirst. We delight in the abundance of God's grace when we stop oppressing and start accepting God's gift of life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the Father of lights from whom every good gift comes down. Lord, grant us obedience to your word of truth to conquer our lusts, to kill the oppressor within, and to live good, upright, and godly lives in this present age, denying ungodly and worldly lusts as we look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.